this weekend. I went with my dad to watch Pixels. Oh, no. Are you, Are you fucking serious? Actually, no, I'm totally joking. Uh, Can you fucking imagine? That, oh, my God. Well, no, that does sound yeah, like something you would say. do. I got to say, this movie did for band instruments what Psycho <laughs> did for showers. I, <laughs> I will never pick up a clarinet ever again. <laughs> Why didn't you pull the machines? Why didn't you call them? You didn't see what was going on? Well, there's no way to determine that. Yes, Sam. there is. An infallible way. They won. Well, it's a casino. People got to win sometimes. Hey, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot? Probability on one four-wheel machine is a million and a half to one. On three machines in a row, it's in the billions. It cannot happen. Would not happen. You fucking Momo, what's the matter with you? Maybe it was the love of the planets. Maybe it was just my growing dislike for this one. But for as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going into space. Now that I've met you... Would you object to never seeing me again? The biggest regret of my life, I let my love go. That price on my head, was that dead or alive? I don't remember. I see if he starts shooting. I don't ask you over for dinner and then suggest you give a lecture on the peoples of Mesoamerica or whatever your pre-Columbian shit is. This is my job. This is how I pay the fucking rent. The same gentleman that told me that you tried to get your broker's license also told me that you were a straight arrow. He ran a security check on me. Well... Sail on a boat fit for a Bond villain, sometimes you need to play the part, right? First of all, dude, you don't have an accent. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it, it gets upset. Its hair falls out. Walter. Fucking no. dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a foul. What happened? Did your, did your balls drop off? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome into episode 25 of Film Tank. My name is Alex Diekman, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the new Mission Impossible film called Rogue Nation. On this episode, we have Nick Cheney with us. Well, hello there, Alex. I do have to point out that you forgot to say that this podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. Ah, that's a good one. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That was good. I actually liked uh, that in this Mission Impossible movie... They kind of got away from that a little bit, so that was that was nice. It did, but it did it in a retro way. I know because that was I thought that was it was well. We're, I'm we'll, just we'll gonna, get into I was going to say I'm, I'm going to get right into it, but I won't. But we'll get into it a little bit later. Also, Tucson Egan here on the show today. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you going to uh, swoop in when I'm doing my intro? No, thanks, I was, man. Wow. I was adding the backings. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's Nick. Nick was just helping. He Literally was just making an addition. Unless you were going to change to that, in which I apologize, but I thought I was helping. Oh, thank you, Nick. So it would be like if you were trying to do a line from Predator, and Nick jumped in as the Predator. Then right. Then that would it. not be helping. <laughs> Let's just talk about Mission Impossible. Uh, well, before we get to Mission Impossible. Do you think there was only one person in that band and orchestra? Do you? Uh, do you? Before we talk about Mission Impossible, guys. Let's talk a little bit about what we uh, did this week in terms of film and TV viewing. And let's have a little week in review as we've... Uh, done quite a few times on this show and uh, nick why don't you start us off you are the resident tv and movie fucking crazy marathon watcher <laughs> so true. what have you been up to although this i don't week? marathon tv no well, ever I mean, like, mm, i'm coming after very, the title very rarely i, I was gonna say. say i know uh with the latest season of uh 
Arrested Development. I thought you watched all of the episodes yes, in one that, day. No, that, that is a rare case. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that was like a 10-year absent. I had to get it all out. Oh, of course. <laughs> but but usually not, not, your, uh, not your speed, huh? No, no. I, I'm very ADD, so to speak, when it comes to TV. But moving on, let's see. What did I watch this weekend? One thing I watched this weekend was the uh, the new New Zealand mockumentary film, What We Do in the Shadows. This movie that was created by the uh, the Flight of the Concords, minus Brett McKenzie, who is now doing uh, song stylings for the Muppets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. For the Muppet TV show, right? No, for the, like, he did it for the the Muppet movie, the one okay. that just came out, and I believe he's also, I believe, working on the sequel that might, may, or did come out. Actually, yeah, they did Muppets Most Wanted. I didn't even see that movie. So you're talking about the Muppet movie with Jason Segel, and then the Muppets Most Wanted that came yes. out last year. Yes, I know for a fact he was affiliated with the Muppets because he wrote those songs. Okay, he got, he got but he's Oscar. not affiliated with the TV show Correct. whatsoever. No, no, okay. that, that's a whole new Muppet uh, franchise, so to speak. I'm glad we have separated yes, those. Yes, me too. Um, but anyway, this this is kind of moving away from that territory because this is not a musical in any way, but mm-hmm. it is. it does take their very... Uh, uh, familiar brand of dry humor and it just tears it to shreds because I found it very very funny I think it is the kind of movie that if you're not feeling it it will it will drag on because even though it's a short movie I mean it's like 80 minutes or something so it doesn't mm. overstay its welcome but it is as much as I'd like to think that the jokes vary like if you're not buying into this ridiculous premise which is that a film crew is just following around vampires and yet also trying to make it look nonchalant you know like like oh one of them is vacuuming but he's also like vacuuming the ceiling because he can, <laughs> he can like you know get up there like little things like that that like you have to just take the little chuckles with the big laughs uh all together but hmm. i thought it was hilarious and i was actually pretty surprised by how it wraps up which i won't spoil per se but i will say that when the movie started and they were given a lot of background uh, information for some of these characters i really thought that was just like a just a way for you to like i don't know kind of pass time and i was kind of surprised that the end of the movie actually kind of circles back around and wraps up all of those dangling threads, which I did not expect from such a, like a, you know, just kind of like a middleweight comedy as far as like what it had in mind and whatnot. So I was pleasantly surprised. Good. Um, So that was good. And I totally recommend it. I do think it's the kind of movie that if you start it and you're not enjoying it in the first 15 minutes or so, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, turn it off right away, but if you, if you, Get to the 15-minute mark and you're not enjoying it. You, it's not going to get much better, even though I do think, actually, a lot of the funnier jokes are toward the end. Uh, so that it, that will be a good litmus test of whether it's your thing. Because it is very, <clears throat> excuse me, very, very tone-specific. Mm. Um, the other thing I watched, uh, I watched uh, Don Herzfeld's uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day. Woo! Yes, which is fantastic. It is his trilogy of... Uh, these three animated shorts that he made over uh, you know these years spanning whatever they were I don't know 2003 to maybe 2011 or something like that mm-hmm. but ballpark in it yeah and um, he basically kind of like each short uh, follows the same character and it is telling uh, kind of a, a through line story but they all kind of have their own unique uh, little snapshot into this stick figure named Bill and his life and it just deals with so many things and yet it's also so funny like it's this is literally 
a drama about mental illness, memory loss, uh, just like anything that you can think of that just does not sound like it would be a good time. And yet there's also a lot of hilarious lines and just dry wit. But This sounds uh, not similar yeah. necessarily, but this, these kind of same themes you're talking about. Uh, is reminding me of when you were talking about Bojack Horseman last week. Yeah, it's actually it's it's it got that I would say like um, balancing act of dealing with something heavy and dealing. But this I will say this like what what I said about that is that that can get like that's hilarious because they're like going for hilarious jokes. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's also crushingly depressing. I wouldn't even call it such a beautiful day a depressing film because it can be melancholy and it can be like meditative. But in the end, it's also just trying to you know it's like it's like proving the point that the the only point to living is to live. Like you know if you expect more from it than that, then you're you're gonna be in for a rude awakening. So it's almost more self aware than something like BoJack Horseman. Um, but the real reason to watch it, if that doesn't entice you, which if it doesn't, then I don't want to know you. But <laughs> um, is that it is such a gorgeous film. It is uh, he. It's besides the fact that obviously he's a brilliant animator an animator's animator yeah he he shoots these films on like 16 millimeter films so it's like this wonderful marriage of just you know 2d animation real stock footage uh transparent backgrounds uh you know i want to say like uh surges of colors that wash through the screen like there's a lot of dream sequences so to speak and whatnot Mm. it is just gorgeous like it is uh he's right now kickstarting to put his uh films on blu-ray since no company really knows what to do with uh, films like his you know and so um that is currently going on if anybody wants it because that's the only chance you'll ever be able to buy it it'll be limited to whoever kickstarts it um and i can't wait to get that because i kickstarted it simply because i can't wait to see what these look like in high definition because it really is one of the most beautiful films the way i kind of i would sell this is like this is like if somebody animated the tree of life but also made it more fucked up because (laughs) it, it has a lot of stuff on its mind basically so actually, the Tree of Life comparison also goes further because it literally opened with uh, a classical song that's in one of the most famous sequences of that movie. Now, is uh, this since you are comparing it in a couple different ways to the Tree of Life? Yeah. Does the tone have any sort of um, kind of Terrence Malicky pretentiousness behind it at all? No, because. If it did, like, there are moments when you could think that because of, like, the goals that it's trying to achieve as far as, like, saying something about the human condition is also completely, I would say, negated by the hilarious dry wit that is apparent, like, when literally, like, you could talk, like, here's the one thing. The characters don't really speak. It's just a narrator speaking the entire time. So it'll be like, Bill walked to the store one day. Bill did this. Bill thought to himself. Yeah. Like that's the only audio from people's voices. Actually, the audio itself is fantastic. Like if you hear like a thunderstorm or something like that. Reminds me of the Stanley parable. Yes. Actually, it's a lot like that. Um, But, uh, but it could go from something that's like depressing because it could be like Bill doesn't know why he's feeling sad today to Bill doesn't like to buy fruit at waist li- waist high level because he knows that's where other people would put their crotch. I mean, like you know, <laughs> it, it goes from that kind of thing. So it never does feel pretentious because it doesn't let the viewer or just the tone of the film ever really seep into something that's overly dramatic. Okay, but it it works on every level, and it's I literally would call it a masterpiece. It's only sixty minutes to watch, so it's like if you can't commit to it, then you're a bad person. But <laughs> it's just uh, it's really something that everybody should at least try to watch. And I'll say this too about um, the Kickstarter campaign to get uh, that on Blu-ray. 
I feel like that is something that is totally worth a Kickstarter, where yeah. um, some people have felt the need to let Kickstarters become commonplace, where I feel like that is a studio's job to yeah. raise the money for a film. No, I completely agree, especially because I also think he's being quite generous, too. Every... Um, like he met his initial goal in six hours, so it's like it was decided that of course he was going to go through with it. And then every time it hit another goal, which he's been like doing in I want to say like twenty five or something like that thousand increments, he's adding another one of his films to the set because he doesn't want to add it unless he has the time and money to color correct it and whatnot. Because yeah. some of them are from ten years ago and whatnot. But literally, we're up to like seven of his other short films, so it's like it's basically turned into a. Blu-ray restoration of "It's Such a Beautiful Day" and now it's almost pretty much the complete, entire the complete works of Don Hurst's yeah. film. But yeah. stuff like that, though, like I feel like that is such a cool thing that that's actually yeah. happening. Where I would like to see more of those things for these smaller filmmakers and smaller kind of animation, um, you know, directors. I was, where where yeah. like things like and I know this is the like always go to example, but like with Veronica Mars, like that, that's something where I. I know that like the fans got what they wanted out of that, but yeah. but at the end of the day, I feel like that was more. I totally uh, understand yeah. that, and I say that as somebody who backed that because I was kind of, I was actually more, I was like curious to see the whole process go down. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to do that, but I also enjoy that show. Yeah, I think Veronica Mars's Kickstarter was more important in opening the floodgate for better or for worse, like because nobody had really thought that that would like a viable option. Like and it a, seems like those campaigns have calmed down a little yeah. bit. But there was like a six-month stretch oh, yeah. there where everyone was like, oh, I'm just going to do a Kickstarter because right. I'm mean, just going to get free money. Spike fucking hate Lee, that. Spike Lee didn't get his movie funded, thankfully. <laughs> uh, Zach Braff made Wish uh, Wish I Was Here or whatever it was. That called. was, for the most part, everyone said that was a horrible film. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. No, I'm not saying it, can, it definitely can be used for negative power. However, it's people's choice to, yeah, to fund it. For sure. But I do think that... I'm like I've been very happy by the response of to this uh, Don Hurstfeld Kickstarter because of like I I know a lot of people that love his work and whatnot, but I really thought that it was not going to translate into like a very public like oh wow there's actually a whole outpouring for this so I was very happy to see and hopefully that'll inspire other people to do the same better in the same situation for sure that uh, that sounds like like a great purpose for a Kickstarter campaign. Also, It's Such a Beautiful Day is on Netflix in case anybody oh. ever wants to watch it. Well, maybe nice. I will check it out now. I was going to say if it's really difficult to find a copy of this, but if it's on Netflix... No, yeah, just physically. Cool. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Well, uh, this week uh, I made a, a trip to uh, Ohio with uh, Kenny to Kenny, a, a couple roller Kenny. coaster parks. R.I.P. Yeah. What? Oh. oh. Don't, be, don't be mean. <laughs> it's a joke. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, anyways, yeah, we. So I did not have a lot of time to uh, watch a lot of television or movies. I haven't even caught up on uh, the seventh episode of True Detective, so I'm going to watch oh, no. both of them here. Oh no! And I'll give you guys a full report here uh, when I do <laughs> finally finish them, whenever that is. I'm sure uh, what it'll, I thought of it, it probably won't be good. I'm sure it'll make up for the rest of the season. Probably negative on that <laughs> one. Uh, the one thing I did watch, however, in this last week. Uh, was my wife and I continued our uh, rewatch of the Harry Potter series. Yeah. We made it through uh, the fifth edition of the uh, series last night, which is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Oh. Uh, and uh, it, it may surprise you guys and a lot of other people, uh, as most people are not a huge fan of uh, the fifth film in the series. Uh, 
And I was kind of on the fence about it, but I will safely say it is my favorite entry in the entire Harry Potter series. Really? Is that yep. the one with the, the battle between Dumbledore and Voldemort? Yes, it I is. I love that shit. That it is. Awesome. Yeah. That is... I, I will argue with people, and if they want to, that's fine, that that is the best 10 minutes of the entire series. Talking about the Ministry of Magic thingy? Yes, yeah. at the end of the film. I agree that that sequence is spectacular. Yeah. yeah. And now, the rest of the film, I could see why people do not enjoy it, which is totally uh, understandable for me. Uh, but I love the whole storyline of them coming of age, the characters really becoming. And that film is really more about Hogwarts than it is about... Uh, Harry and the story with Hermione and um, Ron is is their kind of sidelined in this film uh, per se. It feels like a precursor to the Hunger Games in, in in some ways, as far as like the kids banding together to try to overthrow their authoritative whatever yeah. uh, yes. infrastructure. So yeah, as uh, Dolores Umbridge comes in and is a, a lot of people's least favorite character in the series, although she gets her comeuppance at the end as uh, Hagrid's. For some reason, 20-foot-taller brother comes and snatches her up and runs away, and that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, really, the, what does it for me always is that final sequence uh, in the Ministry where we see Dumbledore and Voldemort really have their only battle in the entire series. And man, it is just fantastic. Yeah. So if you have not seen the Harry Potter series, and uh, or you have seen it and you haven't watched it in a while, and you've kind of thought, ah, eh, that... Order of the Phoenix was really a waste of everyone's time, which I disagree with. However, uh, that final scene, though, is just terrific. I, When Voldemort is doing these spells to bring different elements together and it explodes the glass in the entire room, I mean, that is just yep. unbelievable filmmaking. So, I agree. Way to go, Order of the Phoenix, at least the last 20 minutes. But I love the whole film, um, and I uh, would recommend it. That's all I got. I don't. I didn't watch anything else. You know so. what? We're not going to judge. No, we're not. That's well, not good. what we do here at Film Tank. Never done before. <laughs> we Never literally don't try to analyze anything. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to Dusan and uh, let's hear what he did in this week. All right. So this weekend, I went with my dad to watch Pixels. Oh no! Are you, Are you fucking serious? serious? Actually, no. I'm totally joking. Uh, Can you fucking imagine? That, oh my god! Well, no, that does sound yeah, like something you would say, do. Oh my god! I would commit got... Sempuku right before entering into the fucking theater. But would you no. really though? Because you've seen a lot of really bad films with Look, your dad, including I've... Unfinished Business and the, both of the Purge films. I've seen some really shit films with my dad. <laughs> Pixels is where I will draw the fucking line. An Adam Sandler film is where dad. We have to find something else. Is actually, even, is that even still in the theaters now? Yes, it is. Unfortunately. Okay. Um, no, actually, I didn't watch a lot of films. I actually finished the second season of Dexter, and then I realized I can't watch any more Dexter because I can't watch this supposedly very smart character, like, push himself into even more stupid, insane, over-the-top situations that almost get them caught. Are you talking about Dexter? I'm talking about Dexter, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean the character, not yeah, the show. Yeah, the character. I get that you're talking about Dexter the show. Yeah, Dexter the show and Dexter the character because he's just uh-huh. so fucking stupid and I just cannot, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, um, that'll happen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you told me. You warned me. So instead, I decided to marathon the second season of Arrow because I knew that was on Netflix so wait, for a while. wait, you did watch the entire second season of Dexter? Yes, I did. And then I started the third season. I was like, fuck okay, this. I'm going yeah. back to Arrow. Okay. And that was actually a lot more rewarding uh, effort for my time because uh, Manu Bennett, yes. who was Crixus in Spart- Spartacus, ended up being Slade Wilson or Deathstroke. Well, he appeared in the first season. Did he? Yep. He 
Because he appears on the island with Oliver. I think so. Yeah, I, it, it's been a while since I've seen the. Odyssey. It's been a while since I've seen the first yeah. season. Like it's been. That was the whole thing was time. that like he had already known him from his yeah. time there, and then it turns out he's. Uh, but I still haven't watched the second season, so you enjoyed it. Yeah, the flashback continuity kind of got a little like confusing. Maybe it's because of that lapse of time between me right. watching the first season and the second season. Well, I've heard that because they like felt compelled to stick to it, it doesn't always work. It's, yeah, it's. Like, they need to pull a Lost and, like, figure out a different... Because at Lost, you know, they did it for two seasons, and then they did that brilliant thing where they decided that they weren't going to do it anymore, but they tricked the entire viewing audience for one of the greatest television twists of all time. Fast, fast forwards. Yes, like, yeah. you thought you were watching the past, and then you realized you were watching the future, which was one of the coolest reveals ever. And But it also effectively changed the course of a series, because then they no longer had to look back. So that was... Uh, I think Arrow needs to do something similar. Yeah, they had like a hint at the the end of the second season where they would show like how the flashbacks would factor into that season, and I just thought that's so fucking stupid. Why yeah. do they keep on doing this? Yeah, I haven't heard great things about the newest season, but I have heard good things about the Flash. I haven't seen the Flash yet. He actually gets introduced in this season. Yeah, I heard um, Barry, right? Yeah, Barry. Yeah. yeah, he was he was a pretty cool character. Yeah. I heard his I hear his show is like even better than currently arrow like what they're doing with those shows so. same here yeah so yeah i'm very excited to catch up one of these days yeah dc seems to be i i can't like entirely speak for it because i haven't seen the flash and i haven't seen like the third season of arrow but i think that they're going about the right way of doing their live action series at least on television if not yes. film because there was actually an episode in the second um in the second season of arrow where it's dedicated to task force x which is actually the Suicide Squad, and there's like a, a small like off-screen cameo of Harley Quinn, and I actually read somewhere that they pretty much like smothered that storyline in the crib because of this new Nasaint like Suicide Squad movie. So I was kind of <laughs> bummed about that. I would have loved to see that on Arrow. Do you think DC is like overproducing their films at this point? Because it's not see, and, really. They, well, what I was going to ask though is I mean, you, the fact that they're making them at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> fuck. But Damn. With uh, how good of reviews uh, The Flash has gotten, and with uh, Arrow being a well-regarded show yeah. for the most part up to this point. When it's good, it's good. Yeah. Um, it seems like people seem to be happy with the direction that they're taking with their television shows, as you guys were just talking about. But the films just seem... Like, they're kind of trying to follow that Marvel convolution. That's, that's the reason why they're doing good in TV, because Marvel had not set that template yet. And Marvel's so they, doing their own thing with, like, Agent Carter and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But they're kind of doing that in the wake of, yeah. uh, of what DC been doing so it's kind of like it, it sounds silly but in some way that's who got there first is obviously sometimes a good indicator of who's going to win certain situations but but if, but if you're dc why are you trying to follow this template with because, your films then because the films unfortunately that's what's going to make you money right. i mean you know you get your overseas gross and all that you, you only make money uh on tv via advertisers but don't you wouldn't you, like i feel like they're going to have a better product on TV than I, the films are going to produce. I totally agree, but I feel like they probably also need gross from films to be able to... TV is expensive, and so it, it's like almost more expensive in some ways. Not literally if you like look at totals, but as far as commitment-wise of utilizing your resources, then but, I think that they need to make these films so that way they get something to throw back at the show. But I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is yeah. they can still make the films, but why are they forcing them in this kind of realm? I'm, because I'm, oh, I, 
Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, uh, and Wonder Woman, and whatever film they come up with in the future, the Justice League. It films. all revolves around the Justice League. They came up with that, and then yeah. they work their way backwards. Well, it's, it's that, but it's also seeing not just seeing competition, but seeing that oh wow that. Okay, Jurassic World aside, like, oh wow, like every Marvel film that gets released, you know, goes up to, to this record, it goes up to that record. Like, I think there is just this. Just but but dis- DC's never, never no. done that other other than the Nolan Batman. Right, films. and I think if they hadn't obviously done the Nolan Batman film, no, they wouldn't be doing this. But they think that they've done it once, so therefore they can do it again. But they don't realize. But Zack Snyder doesn't yeah. do well. I was going to say they don't realize that there was a reason why those movies worked, and it was not because they were just doing them. It was because there was it's an actual they were dark and gritty. Well, no, but yeah, yeah, that's what they think. Yeah, <laughs> I love that memo the uh, no jokes memo have you heard about that no I guess not, it was like so. an actual leaked memo that the difference between dc and marvel but that one of like somebody leaked i want to say like either like corporate script notes or something like that but no no it wasn't even that i think it was like literally this sounds like you know banal to say but it literally what got leaked was like this almost like mission statement for dc comic books and one of the bullet points was no jokes because obviously Marvel is, you know, very into, like, comedy as well or whatever. Yeah, sure. But, like, they are literally purposely castrating that, you know, notion that these can be fun, too. Man. Well, that's just a terrible business plan. because yeah, they so. think that it will look like the Nolan films. But that's... Whatever. But the Nolan films smart. actually were funny, too. At yeah. Least, at least DC so is being no smart sense. about, like, not shoehorning... Their their TV continuity into their movie continuity because yeah. I think it's actually really novel for the fact that they're pretty much their entire like television universe is revolving around Green Arrow, who is not the most who's not the largest like like name you think of of a DC. But that's the reason hero. why their TV I think is working. Is yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're not going after like what Marvel does now. Of course, on TV they can't do it because you're never going to get obviously a good act or like a big actor so to speak to be uh, a flag you know, flagship character, but the fact that DC is going after characters like the flash, which has always seemed kind of hokey in some ways. I mean, I'm not trying to insult it, but um, it doesn't have that like prestige that like a Batman does or something like that. He's now, like a fringe core member of the justice yeah. league. Yeah. Now, now here's the problem though. In uh, DC has first, for some reason decided that they need to do this. So the flash is going to be in the justice league film, I'm assuming. And it's going to get, his own film down the road too. I hope they don't kill the show, but it's going to be played by a different actor than is on the show, and it's going to be a different universe than is on the show. Yeah. Why? Why are they doing that? I, I hope they don't kill don't the show. Get, I just don't get it. Don't let them do that. Don't do it. Just, just, just call it, call it a loss. Just let's make a separate continuity. Just don't kill the Flash in order to give another shitty no joke Flash yeah. a chance. No. No. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you, but it. it we could talk about DC for episodes in a row and all, right. all of their terrible choices they've made over the years, but it just really, to me, doesn't seem like they're going anywhere anywhere good with their films right now. And maybe they'll both gross over $800 million next year and they'll be just fucking swimming in it, but I I tend to not think so. Yeah. We'll see. True. All right, guys, let's move on to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Ready or not, Reggie. Ethan, where are you? The syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. Ready or not, here I come. 
you want to bring down the syndicate, it's impossible. Desperate times. Desperate measures. You got your seatbelt on? You ask me that now! Oh my god! This film, which uh, was directed by Christopher McQuarrie, uh, and he his first uh, outing on the series, obviously. He previously worked with Tom Cruise a few years ago on Jack Reacher, Ooh. which uh, I haven't watched the entire thing, but I don't remember it being horrible from what I saw. No, it's I good. Have, I have a lot of people that swear by it as far as like for what it can do. Yeah. It seemed like an uh, interesting film, and I know it was for a while, at least on Netflix, and it may still be. So if you're interested, you can check that out. But in this film, uh, which is the fifth installment of the Mission Impossible series, Ethan and the team take on their most impossible mission yet, (laughs) the Syndicate, who is an international rogue organization that is as highly skilled as the IMF. So uh, this film obviously stars Tom Cruise. Also, Rebecca Ferguson uh, is the uh, female in this film. Also, Jeremy Renner returns as William Brandt. Simon Pegg back is a lot of people's favorite character in the series. Benji Dunn. Also, Ving Rhames. Uh, Tom Hollander makes an appearance in this film. Yes. Alec Baldwin does a terrific job playing uh, the leader of the CIA. And also, we get uh, Sean Harris, who, uh, for everyone playing at home, uh, was the guy with the red beard who everyone knew was going to get killed off first in Prometheus, and then he did, and he is in this film looking like a... It paid like, off. Yeah. He he looks like a like creepy, to me in this film, like a creepy uh, Steve Jobs kind of yeah. wannabe. So. That's actually a very good way of putting it. <laughs> so that is basically what happened in Mission One Impossible. One more thing. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't work but it did Thank you. Uh, that's basically uh, what happened in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation in terms of the uh, technical aspects of it who was in it and what it was about let's start with Nick and his feelings on the Mission Impossible uh, fifth film which uh, he uh, is a fan of the series oh I'm a huge fan of the series I think he was also uh, a fan of this one. Oh, I absolutely was <laughs> I uh, I, I... I guess if I had to sum this up, I, I felt like this movie had an uh, impossible task, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> oh, oh McFly. Yeah. Anybody home? <laughs> uh, but no, I I genuinely, this is probably my favorite running franchise right now, uh, mm. currently. Like, I think I may prefer some of the Fast and the Furious movies, like, at higher highs. But as far as consistency goes, like, I genuinely love all all of them like to to varying degrees yes but like even john woo's uh second entry i think is hilariously awesome like melodrama and yet great greatly directed i mean that's the thing that i can't believe people really gloss over about that one but i won't get into that but all of these films have so much to offer in my opinion and i love that for the first time since you know the 80s with the uh, the alien franchise we actually have a, a a flagship uh franchise in which directors get to step in and actually make their mark which i think is just awesome and i think what i love most about this one is that christopher mccrory didn't really do that but not in a bad way like what i kind of loved is that he kind of paid homage to every single mission impossible film that came before Hmm. both literally and some of the easter eggs of course that were sprinkled in the film like when they referenced past events uh although i suspiciously don't reference anything about the second film Hmm. (laughs) um but also just in like the 
<clears throat> and just in um, what like a lot of the set pieces kind of go back and kind of harken back to uh, to to movies of you know yesteryear and like um, it had this actual espionage and suspense of the very first film and it had this because the first film does the best job of like actually paying homage to the television that it was uh, to the television series that it was based off of and I thought when this movie opened I loved that this was actually kind of the same thing it, it literally is a throwback like the scene where he goes into the, the, the record store and like that's how he gets his message you mm-hmm. know literally it's kind of like this analog equipment and this kind of fetish for old age technology that I just love that it kind of went all out with but then as it went on then it kind of went into the whole Brad Bird spectacle of like Big set pieces, huge stunts, and uh, and yeah, Tom, Tom Cruise is crazy. I, I just love that he's getting older, and yet he's also doing more and more insane shit. Like he earns that paycheck, man. Like oh, holy shit, absolutely. There is so many sequences of this, and what I kind of love about this is that even more than the the previous film, which I actually I love, uh, so I'm not even saying anything bad about this. But uh, even more than the previous film, I, I love that these set pieces themselves were really really different. Like that that obviously that can warrant. Uh, different reaction to them as far as like you'll probably prefer one over the other but the fact that we get this uh, a, a an awesome motorcycle chase which was just fantastic alongside a, a scene like uh, Tom Cruise holding his breath underwater which was completely real like he actually had to train to do that all in one take really yes uh, just something like that, which is not action per se, but uh, just the use of silence in a scene like that actually did kind of harken back to like the De Palma suspense, you know, uh, mm-hmm. era Mission Impossible. So there, there are so many things I could praise about this, and I'm not even saying it's perfect. But one thing I actually do think is wonderful is I do think the addition of Rebecca Ferguson's character is fantastic, and that's easily the best female character the franchise has ever seen, all the way down to the final minute, which is the fact that all they uh like they part ways with a very long and kind of affectionate hug and that's it because that's all that they ever were and they didn't try to shoehorn anything else like a romantic uh you know relationship that just wasn't there mm-hmm. so i kind of love that this film finally kind of stripped that away i mean not to say that paula Patton was only that but obviously there was a obligatory like oh kiss me because i'm acting type moment and, kiss me because i'm acting yeah you know other things like that i just love that this finally got away from that and gave her some really badass moments i mean that knife fight i love that she gets the essentially the, the final fight like Ethan's the one that's kind of like trapped and whatnot, and she's the one who basically just disposes of the uh, of the big bad chasing her around. But I can go on and on, and I I don't even think it's perfect. I do think it kind of drags a little bit in certain scenes, but um, there and there's even scenes I'm thinking of right now that I absolutely love that I won't mention because I know you will bring them up. So oh, okay. I, I'm going to pass it on because I I thought this was a genuinely great. Uh, I think Christopher McQuarrie did the right thing and kind of stepping back, looking at the franchise as a whole, and just saying, how can we just continue this tradition? And he did an excellent job at doing that. I would totally agree with you on that. I, I thought this was a great film. Um, it's not going to be one of my top you know, three or four favorite films of the year when it gets down to the end of it. But I still really enjoyed uh, the ride on this film. I feel like um, this, and even though I gave it a better rating, this and Furious 7 feel like somewhat similar films to me, even though obviously their tone is is different. I feel like in terms of the goal of what both of these films are trying to accomplish, which is giving you a, a solid story and bringing another solid entry into a franchise and doing it really well, I think, in both situations. Um, even though these are very much different franchises in the way that they 
kind of go about their material. Obviously, Fast and the Furious has just fucking gotten crazy ridiculous. However, I will say, though, too, uh, it has gotten to the point with Ethan Hunt where he is basically just fucking indestructible, and there's really nothing you can do no matter what It is happens. true, although that's always been there. They just never really leaned on I mean, if you think about the second film, it literally opened with him dangling from, like, the Grand Canyon, and, like, with no, like, gear or whatever. So it's almost like he's always had this mentality, but that's now they, true. Keep, they keep pushing him to these lengths. But it's, uh, when I say his indestructibleness, uh, yeah. like, that know. crazy car crash and motorcycle crash that he gets in, and he's just like, I'm fine. That is Good. true. Yeah. So that that that's where I'm going with that. Oh, yeah. That it's kind of escalated a little bit, as uh, obviously the Fast and the Furious series has too, for sure. But talking more about this film in particular, Rogue Nation just gives this really nice uh, kind of set piece after set piece throughout the entire film, and it also follows a really somewhat original narrative. I thought, even though this whole story of uh, a rogue nation, the syndicate kind of getting under everybody's noses and whatever. They're the other side of the coin. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was actually, I love that it was basically the the ghost mirror of the fourth film, because the mm-hmm. fourth film was all about them being disbanded and having like to initiate quote-unquote ghost protocol, so therefore they were like disavowed, but they were still agents acting on their own volition. How many times have they been, been disavowed? Well, I mean, they, they threaten disavowalment like every, uh, you know, like, <laughs> like the first film, they're all, I don't know if they're disavowed, out, but they like the mission goes so horribly wrong that they all go into hiding who's ever left in the first film. So this is definitely no, nothing new to the franchise itself. But this was the first time, like Alex has pointed out, that they kind of like they did the like like I said the ghost mirror of that, where like they were finally actually fighting like the evil version of themselves, you know, like evil Spock, so to speak. Yeah. But but the whole point of the uh, the syndicate is is that the the these people are basically were spies at one point, and they now have gone to the dark side, basically, at what uh, Alec Baldwin and the rest of the CIA thinks that Ethan Hunt has done, where he's going against them now. But I feel like that whole story of the syndicate, including Sean Harris's character, who really was not anything special in terms of a villain. In fact, uh, even though I did enjoy his portrayal a lot more, I would put him up there, right up there, with uh, the uh, villain from the uh, Quantum of Solace uh, film, which is basically one of the worst Bond villains ever. Right. But, but that is a very good replaceable comparison because I always feel like Mission Possible is the flip side of the James Bond franchise mm-hmm. because instead of like not that there is none of it but instead of womanizing and just suave whatever like this has a reliance on espionage and that kind of stuff. However, that also means that. Uh, pretty much throughout the entire franchise. The villains have never been interesting, except for in the very first film, uh, whereas the Bond villains, obviously, are some of the biggest draws when they're good. Yeah. and But even though I liked a lot of what John Harris did in this film, especially when he gets more involved later in the film, uh, again, that villain, just not anything special at all. But the two things that I will say about this film that I genuinely loved and would say that it made this film really stand out one, you brought up Rebecca Ferguson. I feel like, for me, genuinely, up until about maybe like the halfway point, I really was kind of buying into what they were selling of her either being good or bad. Like, I felt like she could have gone the way and actually, like, turned out to be a villain in this film. Or a free agent on her own. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but I, I didn't always think at every ter- in every single scene that she was genuinely a good person and was doing this 
uh, and obviously that ends up what ends up happening. But at the same time, I actually thought there was a chance she wouldn't be. So that was a really well done job by the filmmakers. And the about fifteen minute scene that involves the opera, yes. uh, man, awesome. that is that just, was the scene I was referring to. That is just a one of the best set pieces from an action film that I can remember in quite some time. Just because, we, as we talked about on last week's episode, when we had Sam here talking about theater. That really got all of the elements of the opera involved in it. And not just the show. We got the backstage. We even got involved with the technical directors, the orchestra. Everything was involved in this scene. And they weren't just throwing in. There wasn't, you know, uh, a part of a uh, Pavarotti aria or whatever happening. It It was the entire picture of the opera house and what is happening. And, man, it just goes from scene to scene. We see, you know, real reasons for why... Uh, uh, people are moving throughout the theater, why they were able to be hidden. Uh, and, man, that was just it such like, a wonderful scene. I mean, I know this sounds like a superficial comparison, but it really did feel like like a Phantom of the Opera thing as far as, like, the story is going on down there, and then there's a whole other story that's beautifully captured in the mm-hmm. cat in the cat skills. Uh, I got to say, this movie did for band instruments what Psycho <laughs> did for showers. I, <laughs> I will never pick up a clarinet ever again. Yeah, and that that uh, when they're putting the guns together out of the, right. the band instruments, that's just great. That was cool. But yeah, some of the some of the shots even when um, Rebecca Ferguson's character is getting ready to, to shoot at the uh, the whatever prime Which minister or counselor wonderfully or suspenseful because yeah. as a viewer you have no idea what's happening in that scene like it, at first you think you do because you're like okay i know where this is going but then they keep adding another like layer to it to mm-hmm. the point where it's like well then wait why are the other people there and like so i love the way that that scene played out it was the standout scene of the film for me and it really wasn't that close with Sailor Phil. not there were other scenes weren't good yeah. but that was by far the tippy top for me so we'll move on to and uh, get his feelings. As I, I, I'm guessing you haven't seen a lot of the Mission Impossible films. Is I've, that correct? I've only seen the first one and the third one, and I wasn't okay. left um, too enthused after the, the third one. But I really enjoyed uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I thought it was just a genuinely a very fun movie. I think it was just a a, a by the numbers, and I don't mean that as a as, as an insult. I think it just like checked everything off of the checklist for a really fun, enjoyable summer action spy thriller. I was really pleased with the fact that um, what, what I would think is like the, the money shot of the promotional material, which is... A uh, plane? Yeah, Ethan Hunt hanging off the side of the plane. I'm glad that that was actually part of the the first part of the film instead of like great. the actual core yeah it was really funny actually yeah. it was just I, like, like i gotta open said. the door and it's like you open the back door oh yeah. do you want me to open the side door it's like <laughs> fuck you um i'm glad that, that wasn't the the entire like centerpiece of the later half of the film i'm glad that that was just like a a sideline other storyline that was just being wrapped up by something else take notes films that are making trailers yes. yeah that's the other thing is that not to throw shade at either the terminator do um, it or even Marvel or whatever, do but it. they they do they 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 take whatever the money shot is, no matter where it is in the script, and they're like, "This is it. You need to come see this." And then they don't realize like how it's just upsetting that is when you actually do like go see a movie and like for this to be like you said the first scene, but not just mm-hmm. the first scene, but no context whatsoever. And it, just, was, yeah. you know, it was so early; it was before the opening credits. Yes. Like it was what led into the opening yes. credits, and that was actually yeah. what made it even better because then at least then you're in on that joke as far as like yeah, this is so ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I also love the way that that scene escalates because more of him than plane, which is, of course, like jaw-dropping as far as like seeing him do this stunt, but more than him hanging on the plane, I just I started giggling like a little kid watching the very first one when I first discovered that movie uh, when I was a kid, when he, um, he's got himself strapped to the, the warheads or whatever, and then he just pulls the ripcord for the parachute. Like, just, you know, it's just that kind of spy work that just, like, makes me remember why I just love, like, spy movies in general, but also what most of them just kind of get wrong about spy movies. Like, it's just, it's a sense of fun of being able to do whatever you want in that moment. Like, it's because it's not so much an action thing, it's so much as, like, a, you know, once you are, you know, this field agent, you, you have this liberty to just do whatever the fuck you want, and it's awesome. I, I love it. Yeah, definitely. Um, Alex, I wanted to echo your sentiments about uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa mm-hmm. Faust. She was actually one of my favorite parts of the film. I love that. There, I, I would agree that she had like this core of moral ambiguity that just like followed her, and it's like it was hard to kind of like really get a grasp of like whose side was she really on. I I almost really wanted her to be her own free agent. I wanted her to just kind of like leave Ethan in the dust and just like like fall off the grid. I thought but that'd be I, really I really cool. thought that was possible at certain yeah. parts. Yeah, like film. yeah, like if they. That's the thing is like at the one hand, I I, I don't think they would because yeah. there's going to be more movies. And yeah, whatnot. sure. On the other hand, like what a brilliant way that would be to set up another movie is to you know to make you think you're watching this movie although to reveal that no she's gonna be the next villain in the next movie or something like that like i i do wish this movie pushed itself a little harder in that respect when it comes to wrapping up its various storylines i speaking of of future films like i I walked out of the theater thinking is like there's no way they're going to dismantle the entire rogue nation by the end of this film i mean there has to be like some continuity after this i wish i i i hope that the next like mission impossible actually addresses like some of the the aftermath of this, the dregs of of the like anti IF. Thought they got rid of it. Yeah, well, I I really enjoyed the the explanation behind it. Just thinking that um, like Great Britain would make this secret yeah. like rogue nation that was supposed to basically just be embarrassed. Yeah, yeah that... <laughs> <laughs> whoopsie. Yeah, it was like it's supposed to um. Like, who was the guy? Like, the guy who got the uh, the truth serum, like, put into him. Yeah, that's Tom Hollander, the actor, but he's the prime minister. Yeah, the prime minister. It was, it was, they were supposed to, um, like, be responsible to, like, the the prime minister, but he didn't want anything to do with it, and Atlee decided to, like, make it behind his back, and then Solomon just, like, went ran off with it. That was one of the parts of the film that, if I was going to have a a thing that I didn't like about it. Really? That one of the, that part of the film got a little. A little wishy-washy Long for in the me. Tooth Not necessarily. Okay. Just the story behind it got a little, eh. Like the the, the whole story of um, the the uh, English going behind the prime minister and sort of figuring this out. We're not really sure what exactly happened with it, and they. I, I feel like it wasn't not it wasn't not necessarily intentional. Like they they wanted you to think that they weren't behind it, but they may have been, and it was kind of it was kind of weird. And yeah, I think that was also maybe all in the service of Rebecca Ferguson's character yeah. because you had to buy the fact that, you know, she wouldn't be able to be extracted at any point. Um, but I can understand that. Uh, as I got to say, as a uh, British TV nerd, it was great to see Tom Hollander, and I yeah. don't remember the actor's name who plays Atlee, but... Um, they were in the thick of it? No, they weren't in the thick of it. Okay. Tom Hollander is only in one scene in the yeah. thick of it. But Tom Hollander and the guy... Simon McBurney is his yes. name. And him are in a show that just ended, actually, a third season, and I believe final, the way it wrapped up, called Reb, which is one of the greatest uh, British sitcoms in the last five years. Uh, so, And they played a, a priest and a, a 
basically archdeacon respectively so and they're a very great team so unfortunately this movie didn't necessarily give me enough of them back together but i as a as a british tv nerd it was funny to see that it was those two out of all people yeah it's also interesting i i like seeing tom hollander because i feel like he is a really good actor he really is and um i've always been disappointed that he got pigeonholed into playing the villain Cutler Beckett in the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which I feel like did a huge he's, disservice. He's to, so much more than that. I know. When um, <laughs> I I was almost cracking up on accident in this movie when you see the first because the whole movie I saw his name in the credits, so I'm like, oh yeah. And of course, like an hour and a half goes by, you don't even see where the him. fuck's Tom Hollander. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I legitimately started to think that he was Solomon Lane because I'm like, is he just hiding in plain sight now? Like I don't get this, but then I figured it out, and I love that the first scene you. see see him uh in is of a news bulletin you know like the bbc news bulletin like of him being interviewed Mm -hmm. and i could not help but think that it was like a deleted scene from in the loop uh when he's (laughs) getting interviewed that starts that entire shitstorm in that movie but i just was like yeah i was universes were crossing over man and i could not get enough of it i have to uh just chime in with this one thing that i did notice from the film it's from one of my favorite characters for uh benji for simon Pegg. i thought he was hilarious in this film especially when he was going through the um uh the lie detector <laughs> test just like trying to like uh suppress that he gets like the tickets to the the opera and he's like trying to like i have to like lie on my next lie detector test like next week like how the fuck does he do it but the thing that i noticed and it's a total nerd thing i know um when he is Are playing- you saying lie detector tests are not hold they, they do not hold up in court <laughs> when he's playing video games before his his first scene and like his supervisor is coming up behind him asking him to go to his test he is playing Halo 5 Guardians on a PC with a PlayStation 4 controller Uh-oh. none of that shit makes sense and i know that was just You can't there. do mods no, not oh. with that. No, okay. that's okay. exclusive to an Xbox One, which is not a PC, and that uh, cannot be played well, with a I PS4 think, controller. Hold on now. Benji is supposed to be a genius. I know, I know. That's Maybe the... he's a super coder. <laughs> just saying. I'm pretty sure that was in there to annoy the fuck out of people like you. Just so yeah, annoy the fuck out of me. But I, I like that it actually had an, a real video game for like from this year just to tie it into like the plausibility of existing within like a... A realistic universe, but speaking of uh, Benji, I I was both somewhat underwhelmed and yet also really surprised in a good way how they used his character because I thought he was funnier in the fourth film. Like mm-hmm. there was a lot of great comedic moments in the fourth, yeah, especially film. Uh, the the great scene. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, there was a scene early on in uh, Ghost Protocol in the uh, the Kremlin, yep. and it is it is honestly uh, one of the most hilarious scenes I can remember from a uh, action spy film. And greatest displays of like spy, like like what you can do with that genre. Uh, but yeah, like I'm thinking of that scene. I'm thinking of like his line after Ethan Hunt comes through the window after like falling stories and saying, Whew, "You would not believe what I just had to do. That was difficult." <laughs> uh, like things like that. And I feel like in this film, of course, he had some good lines or whatever. But in one sense, I didn't think he was kind of as funny. Which which I guess I'm actually kind of glad because obviously there's always a tendency to like, you know, overdo that sort of thing. But I thought it was almost underdone in this point. But one thing I loved about the way he was used was I kind of loved the way that they genuinely dug into the friendship between Ethan Hunt and Benji, even if it was, you know, brief and whatnot. The scene with them, uh, I don't remember where they were, so to speak, but they're in that like secret IMF hideout that like no one knows about because yeah. <laughs> that's plausible. Uh, um, and they, they kind of have that fight where 
where he's saying like, no, you, you, you didn't, whatever. He's like, the fact that you didn't consider me is what hurts. So, you know, like, I, th- I thought that was actually pretty good. Like the, the fact that the movie would actually spend some time with that because I thought it was very rewarding. Well, it was also nice to see Benji uh, turned into the sidekick in this film because I feel like uh, the tendency of this film and the previous film, I've always thought it was going to be pushing Jeremy Renner's character even more and really he it gets pulled out and sidelined in this film which may be because he was doing things with the Avengers when they were filming this Hawkeye (laughs) but at the same time uh, I felt like that was such a great choice to have Simon Pegg even more involved like when he is having that scene you're referencing talking to him and saying no I'm gonna stay I'm I'm I came here you asked me to come here I'm staying and then he ends up staying for the rest of the film like I was so happy about that because I love seeing more of him and Tom Cruise because I also feel like Tom Cruise isn't the uh, the best necessarily when it comes to on-screen chemistry with other actors and no. actresses, no. but I feel like he and Simon Pegg do really well together on screen and they his, complement each other well. I was going to say, like, his whole, like, I'm a superstar and, like, Simon Pegg's like, oh, I'm, I'm just here for the ride. Like, <laughs> it really does work together almost in spite of each other type mm. thing. Uh, but I actually, I, I agree with what you're saying because I feel like, yeah, if like if somebody like Jeremy Renner became like the sidekick or de facto sidekick, so to speak, because really nobody's a sidekick to Ethan Hunt. It's, but but it's in, in terms of there. screen time oh, and yeah. how much he's involved with the story, right. uh, it was nice to not see him be forced. No, and much. I kind of love that he almost did take a backseat, Jeremy Renner, I mean, uh, because one thing is that I thought the fourth movie kind of set that up. So it's like, if he didn't, it would be like, I don't mind when they retcon, not even retcon, but when they said like Benji's line of like, Oh, I'm out of the field now because it's like, okay, whatever. Like that's a better choice script wise and whatnot. But if they somehow it's like, because Jeremy Renner's character was always in the background of even four saying like, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. So the fact that they literally made him a, a bureaucratic type in this movie, I thought was a great choice, especially if it means that we're going to get more scenes of like Alec Baldwin and him just kind of like palling around because especially that final scene when they do like a repeat of the earlier scene mm. it's like I can either confirm can or deny form, confirm or deny yeah. <laughs> like, I, like that actually it's not so much that I'm looking forward to the next Mission Impossible because I really don't know how many you know more they can really do whatever but that is a new dynamic that I am looking forward to uh, Alec Baldwin kind of being in on the fun so to speak yeah and Jeremy Renner I feel like was perfectly utilized in this film for what he needed to be like yeah. the, the choice of the filmmakers the writers the director everybody to sort of use him in the way they did, I felt was perfect for what his character was and also what he brings to the table as what, an actor. What you said about Rebecca Ferguson, I almost feel like they did a, almost as good a job with him as far as like where his loyalties were lying because not so much that I necessarily completely fell for his trap, but mm-hmm. because that's always been his character, I'm glad that they followed through on that and they could, at least they addressed the idea that like he was never going to be okay with this until he had to be type thing. I, see, I, I, I guess I'll just agree because i never at one point thought oh yeah he's he's turning on ethan no that's the thing is i'm trying to say like i don't necessarily say but i believe it but i'm glad that they still went through the motions even if i didn't because otherwise i think that would have been a poorly written character so Mm. to speak so yeah we've talked about almost everyone on the principal cast except for ving rain so i wanted to ask like what's your opinion on him because i don't know like how to feel about him it's like he was in like a few minute scenes is he just like there out of seniority like he just like I came in one day. I still can't ever see Vane Rames in a film without thinking of him uh, being raped during Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Gotta be totally honest with you, man. Every time I see it's him... It's been years! Every it's time been I, years, every Alex. T- I, well, he sounds and he looks the exact same. Every time I see him, all I can think of is 
we're going to get a blowtorch, and he's going to be in so much fucking pain. <laughs> I, every time. I just can't do it, man. With a ball gag just like <laughs> <laughs> hanging around his neck. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. I just can't do it. But yeah, uh, Ving Rhames, uh, is, uh me and Nick were mentioning earlier, he is like the like meaning of the word cameo in the fourth film. Like he is yeah. pigeonholed in at the end, and he has a lot more to do here, and it was it was well done, I thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I agree, and I think, yeah, with him and Tom Cruise being the only people that have been in every single film, <clears throat> even if it is just a cameo in the fourth film, I guess I kind of did like it. Uh, I think what made me on board for the fact that he was included this time around was the way he was introduced, because I love when, in the very first mission, when uh, Brant, you know, his character is talking to Benji over the microphone or whatever. And, and then he says something like, Oh yeah, well Luther is what and then he's like, wait, what Luther's there. And you know, like I just kind of <laughs> love that. They just kind of skip past that. And they're like, yeah, he's back. So, um, because he wasn't given too much to do, but also kept it going. Like there, there's some funny stuff like, Oh, and another really quick joke that I did love was when Brant was like, so yeah, if you could just get on that or whatever, he's like, okay, I'm done. And he's like, Oh really? You know? So at least a, he, he wasn't just like, I would say a useless character yeah. to have around. But also, B, you know, I do like that the fact that the the franchise is at least somewhat trying to have some kind of connective tissue to make it lasting, uh, worthwhile for the viewers. Well, and I feel like they've done a really nice job creating a multitude of characters in this universe now. And we've seen characters who have been repeated. I mean, Simon Pegg, this is his third film. This is the second for Jeremy Renner. Vin Rames has been in all five. And it, it's really become a true team. It's not just Ethan Hunt part of the IMF and the other characters are only took them five films. Well, (laughs) but they have been building up in the previous films to this. And now they have a true, the the second film is really the only time when like they let Ethan Hunt do his own thing for like the entire film, even Mm. though he brings on uh, Luther and this other random Australian guy that I, for some weird reason, always keep thinking we'll see again one day. Just because he was such a, like a, I don't know, he's such a, like, not seeing Steeler in a good way, but like an obnoxious character that I always felt like one day they were just going to have him be like, hey, mate, and like show up again or whatever. But um, yeah, in the first film, they, they actually do have a team, and it's actually like quite the team because it's almost hard to figure out who's the main character like in the first 10 minutes uh, hmm. if you don't know who Cruz is. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, of course, that climax of the first act is that like the whole team gets massacred. Um, so yeah, so to speak, that. This is, especially between the fourth and the fifth, they're finally starting to kind of pull through that group mentality for sure. And it is definitely making it uh, more worthwhile as we're moving forward. And it's interesting, too, because we've spent a lot of the time talking about the supporting characters and not as much talking about Tom Cruise, who I feel like just puts on another solid performance yeah. here. Like, in one way, like, I, I can't imagine anybody else doing this yeah. role because, like, I, I do think he's actually the perfect fit for it. But it's not so much because he, like, is Tom Cruise that he's doing his, you know, like, the only thing, not the stunts-wise, but, like, performance-wise, you know, there are other people that can do this. But that's actually what makes this even better. Like, what I love about this franchise compared to something like the James Bond franchise is if you look at that franchise, that's, like, what uh that's one spy making all the right moves and when something goes wrong it's because like another person just had the upper hand and that's the only thing what i love about this franchise is that this is a super spy that keeps accidentally fucking things up like it's not because he's incompetent but because like i'm thinking about like the water scene when he's under the you know he's holding his breath and he's got the disc and all of a sudden the fan comes out of nowhere knocks him around and knocks the thing out of his hand and he can't figure out which one is which like it's those kind of things where it's kind of like he truly uh He's up against the impossible, so well, to speak. But that's that. I mean, shouldn't that make sense? Like that was something when they are having the initial hearing with Alec Baldwin, 
and Jeremy Renner's character. Uh, and you know, this is the impossible mission force. Like right. things aren't going to exactly. go exactly to fucking script every time because they're doing these missions that honestly they are impossible. That's exactly what they are. So. And I think we had a conversation when we left the theater, Alex, about how you were saying, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. uh, you were saying like, you know, in these kinds of movies and really in a lot of these kinds of movies, like, you don't have that suspense of whether a character is like, like Tom Cruise's character is going to die or something like that. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. But that's why these films are still entertaining because it's never whether he's like in danger, but it's always like, how is he going to get out of this situation? Not even alive, but like, how is he going to complete the mission? And I feel like because that's what this premise is all about, that's why these movies still are so damn exciting. And mm. that 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 is uh, obviously part of it is that you're not sure how he's going to escape the situation. And I, I'm, I'm with you on what you're saying. But I, I still do think some of the suspenseful scenes, like of him, you see him like floating away in the uh, in the water tank when he has no more oxygen left, and even people were like gasping in the theater. I'm like, yeah, he's gonna live. What are they, are they gonna kill him off here? What he's just gonna? Well, he's dead. Jeremy Brandt's gonna become the new Ethan. Hunt. Oh no! <laughs> Fuck that! No! I think I think I just called him Jeremy Brandt too, did. just combining his names. <laughs> he did. Jeremy Renner's character Brandt. Yeah, he'll just become you know it's Jeremy Brandt. Yeah, no, I mean those are people that are you know just going along for the ride, I guess. But but that's why yeah. they these films still work as far as because it's kind of like you you know what's going to happen, but you just don't know how it's going to happen, mm-hmm. which is kind of exciting. Okay. So any more uh, thoughts before we go to ratings on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation? Nope. Okay. Well, let's uh, go to Nick first and hear what his rating is. You know, I'm, I'm glad we had this talk today because <laughs> I, I gave it an initial rating, and I think I'm going to raise it because okay. the more I think about it, the more I actually think that this is one of the the more successful outings. But that's not saying much because I genuinely do love all of them except for number three, which I, I merely like. I do enjoy it, to be honest. Where's the white rabbit? <laughs> I do enjoy it. But, yes, it, it is uh, – J.J. Abrams was kind of not the – best choice for the franchise so to speak well he is and he isn't because i'm gonna go off on a tangent but nobody stopped me but because he made one of the greatest tv pilots of all time with uh uh the alias pilot which Mm -hmm. is not the greatest show of all time at all but that pilot was a perfect uh, introduction to a espionage world it's literally about a cia agent so so it was he was almost too good of a fit because he's like he's already done it before and therefore like he shouldn't be working in an establishing uh, established franchise the fact that like somebody like john woo or brian de palma or you know now christopher mcquarrie is kind of coming in when they haven't really done this particular thing at least uh that's why it worked because they were able to infuse their own uh brand but uh get off on a tangent i'll get off of it now um <laughs> i genuinely love this i love so much about this film like i feel like even though i said earlier that it dragged like there is still enough in this to really keep anybody interested i think because uh, like even if you look at something like uh i liked how i would say spaced apart like the fight scenes were like um even if it's very short like when uh, rebecca ferguson saves tom cruise uh when he's being held prisoner at the beginning of the movie uh, um and like they kind of take out all the people in that room like you know that only lasts like what a minute or something yeah. like that and yet it's still it's that it's, it's so well done that like that's enough for that moment that you don't have to like they don't need to like do like the raid levels of like you know chaos type thing can you imagine <laughs> i can't although i gotta say that stunt when he is uh when he's 
what do I want to say? Handcuffed to the pole, and he does like. Oh man, that was so fucking sick. When he, yeah, when he like shimmies upwards, I, I just I don't know how a human body can do that. So I like even just seeing that, I was like, you go, Tom, you go. Feeting levels, man. <laughs> yeah, but I talked to Zenu. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this really is a fun film. There are so many standout sequences that we've already named, like the opera sequence and. Honestly, my probably the most fun I had with this was the motorcycle chase because mm. I just, uh, besides the fact that it was actually kind of a throwback to John Woo's uh, installment, because there was a lot of motorcycle chasing in that. Quite good stuff, I, I might add. But um, just like, you know, like a, just to see a, a guy fall off his motorcycle and then the motorcycle just slide across a mountainside and then blow up for no apparent reason other than it just looks amazing. Um, <laughs> I love that this film indulges when it should, but then pulls back when it shouldn't. And so. For that reason, and because I just kind of, while I wouldn't say this is the most unique Mission Impossible film, I do think this might be just the best infusion of what makes all of these great. For that reason alone, I have to give it four out of five stars, because it really is a damn good time. It's not my favorite installment, but I can't believe that I just saw the fifth Mission Impossible movie, and I liked it this much. So that, that's, that in and of itself is a success. Very good. Well, I also uh, enjoyed this uh, installment into the series quite a bit. Uh, I, I really like a lot of the scenes in this film, and I really think they add up to a really solid film in general. You know, a, a lot of action films are really based on the scenes, and the story and the plot kind of takes a backseat to what you're seeing in certain parts of the film, where I feel like that is kind of happening at some points here, but I feel like overall the story works for this film. And even though uh, there's the story of this underground sort of rogue nation in in the syndicate is is kind of a little bland, I I did feel like it was was actually original. Like I don't I don't think it was bland. I think it was done pretty well for what it was trying to be. Um, Sean Harris is the villain. Not anything exciting, uh, but at the same time, I feel like he's a much different villain than we've gotten in other parts of this series. And two, uh, I find it interesting that he gets captured at the end and not killed, so there is obviously the chance that he will be returning at some point, uh, maybe when they make the next one five years or six years from now. I like that they fulfilled the idea that a spy movie is more of a chess game than it is a a war or a battle. Well, and two, they didn't give him the pleasure of killing him at the end. They, They captured him just as Tom Cruise was captured, and that was a really nice callback to earlier in the film. Yep. I don't know where they got the tools and the uh, the know-how to pull that off, but you know what? They're the impossible mission force. So I was going to say, literally that moment was redeemed because I was almost not on board until okay. one of them just said out loud, we're the IMF. Like, like that, like, <laughs> you can't just not go, oh, fuck yeah. yeah. But that scene where the four of them are standing around the glass, actually the five of them are standing around the glass and then the smoke is building up, and Sean Harris's character is banging on the glass, and you see his his kind of face just getting encompassed by this uh, smoke. Man, that was awesome. That was just a great scene. There were so many other great scenes of this movie, and so many great characters, and I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like this series is going in a, a really solid direction, and I, I love that, that you can have single-serving films in a franchise where honestly you could get you could jump on and jump off with this fifth entry and really you wouldn't have missed that much uh, from the earlier films. So uh, it's a four out of five for me. I really enjoyed Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and I will be there week one when the next Mission Impossible film comes out sometime in 2020 probably. Film Tank will be there. Oh, wow. we'll still be around. Okay. Well, okay. On the God, gauntlet. I hope so. This is going to be really weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People will probably have long forgotten if we're not around by then. Oh, but uh, we'll, we'll, you know, 
High hopes. Hopefully, uh, Cuddy will be back. Hey, we'll see. I love that you also pointed at his chair. Well, you know, because, his you know, spirit is still here. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I, I'm a fan. And if we are still doing the show, whenever the sixth Mission Impossible film comes out, you bet your ass we're going to be doing it. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. This mission just got a whole hell of a lot more impossible. <laughs> well, if that wasn't awkward enough, let's go on to Dusan's. First of all, I was—I just want to point <laughs> this out. <laughs> I was quoting from uh, the Ben Stiller MTV uh, Movie Awards sketch where when that Mission Impossible 2 came out, yeah. he, he was hosting the MTV Movie Awards, and he did a very, very funny skit that I know you can find on YouTube now where he played Tom Cruise's uh, stunt double. Ha ha, because obviously he does all his own stunts. Mm-hmm. But at one point he tells Tom Cruise, you know, during the motorcycle chase, when you turn and face him with a gun, maybe you should say... This mission just got a hell of a lot more impossible. And of course, Tom Cruise is actually doing wonderfully, like the stoic face of like, no, fuck off. <laughs> so, Jazan, uh, let's get your thoughts here. I thought it was an excellent film. Okay. I, I wasn't expecting much, just coming off of the the one impression that I had, which was like the, the previous film, like not the previous film, but Mission Impossible 3. Um, yeah, I enjoyed Simon Pegg. I enjoyed Rebecca Ferguson. I thought that Tom Cruise is. He is insane for continuing to do these practical special like practical stunts still into like how old is he now? Like into his like fifty three, I think. Fifty three? Holy shit. Oh my god. Yeah. I hope I'm in that good of a shape when I'm fifty three. Probably not. Um None of us will be. No, none of us will be. No. Um I would say that I'd I'd have to give this film a a three and a half out of five. It's like just because like it I this this conversation before going into it, I was gonna give it a, a three out of five, but just like talking to you guys out talking it out it's just like there's a lot to appreciate about this film i think that for as long as this franchise has been going on like what was the first mission impossible film when did that come out like uh, 1995 holy fuck yeah i mean it was five or six i don't know if it was quite that far it might have been six or seven but it was it was but a while still, ago mid 90s yeah for this franchise to still be going on and to still find a way to revitalize itself and continue going and that i'm actually looking forward to the next film it's 96 by the way holy shit was it yep um it was only off by one i yeah. think that's uh that's not only a credit to the fact that as as we've said before that this is of this is a franchise that's more of a vehicle for the directors than it is for like the story or anything else that they continue to re like reinvigorate this formula that I still want to go see the sixth film after this. Like I think that's to its credit. So yeah. I'm definitely giving it a three and a half out of five. Awesome. Yeah. I th- and since Kenny uh, will not be on for a, a few episodes, I think we'll have to say we can put this on the hit list. Ooh. I think so. I think, I think that'll be okay. Yeah. So if it's, it's just going to be the, the three amigos here for a little while, at least, uh, I think we'll count this and we'll put it on the hit list that maybe someday we'll get updated. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I feel like that comment was directed at me. It may have been. One we, of these days. <laughs> I will update it. Okay. We went for quite this, a while without week. having an edition. And now I think three out of four weeks we've had a... Uh, a, I know. Uh, in, to inside list. Out. I forgot to put that up there. Inside it'll, Out. It'll, it'll be up there. There yeah. will be blood. Um, oh, yeah. The the film we did last week uh, also Inglourious on there. Glorious Bastards. And this one. Oh, so yeah, that's right. You've got a lot of lot of work to do with the internet. I know. You've I got to, a lot of typing to do. I have to type to in four titles of a film, and I still <laughs> haven't done it yet. Well, obviously, it's a really tough challenge. So Ooh, shit. It is, actually. <laughs> So uh, thank you very much for listening to uh, this episode of Film Tank. On our next episode, we'll be discussing uh, the independent film, The Overnight, 
uh, which stars uh, Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman. And they're dicks. Wow. Spoiler. <laughs> well, you, you got to know going in. Boing. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely an interesting film, and uh, if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, I would uh, try to check it out. I don't really know where Rebuild find it right now, as uh, it, we had a tough challenge finding this one in the theater. We we had to try it twice. Yeah, actually, the first time we went to the theater, they weren't playing it after we thought they were going to, so we went another time and because saw. They're it. horrible theater. Yeah, and fu- I hate them. Fucking fascists. That's right. Uh, but anyways, we uh, will be reviewing the overnight uh, next week's episode. And uh, if you have feelings on uh, on that film and you'd like to, to get us, us to get to them on a future episode, you want to send that on to a film tank show at gmail.com or, or any movie. Just, or if you just reviewed. have feelings yeah, that you want to share. Just life feelings. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, like we're we're all actually uh, doctors and thera- oh. uh, therapy services. Yeah, just so. let us know how you are. How, how are you, don't, audience? Don't address it to Tucson, though. Why not? He's got enough problems. He has oh, interesting, interesting thoughts on things. <laughs> what? Well, it's truth, Predator. But <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the film we'll be talking about next week. And as uh, Nick just mentioned, you can send all questions. <laughs> you can s- or, send your emotional rants or, to us. <laughs> yeah. To <laughs> filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can find all our episodes on filmtankshow.com and also on iTunes as well. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. So from Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to this 25th episode of Film Tank. We will catch up with you next time.